Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. We had NBA news yesterday after the pod was released, and it was not my favorite news we've had this offseason. In fact, it's down there with one of the least favorite pieces of news we've had this offseason. The Celtics announcing that the Time Lord, our good buddy, friend of the program, Robert Williams, is set to undergo knee surgery, meniscus stuff, and is expected to miss anywhere from four to six weeks. Although most reports that I've looked at suggest that these types of procedures, especially for big men, can linger more into the six to eight realm. But either way, those that have been listening to this podcast religiously and counting down the days with yours truly know that we are now under four weeks from the start of the NBA season. So even if you accept accept somehow that this is a best-case scenario, he hasn't yet undergone the actual procedure. Three weeks and six days, we're at 27 is the countdown. Even if he underwent the procedure now, as we're doing the podcast, a best-case scenario has him getting back on the court after opening night, to which you need training camp, you need some ramp-up time, there's going to be games where the minutes are low. There will be season-long maintenance. And I think we can basically assume pretty safely that it's not going to be the best-case scenario. He's been dealing with this lingering knee stuff for a long time now, which is saying something considering he hasn't been in the league all that long. So this is going to stick around. We actually got a piece of news breaking as we're talking right now related to Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So that will have to be the next thing we talk about. Woof. The back on Robert Williams. I think you probably, when you're doing assessments like this, you generally grab the number in the middle. Even if you think with a guy like with Robert, you expect it to be more towards the back end. What's a worst-case scenario? Well, this thing lingers for eight weeks. He gets on the court slowly. There's maintenance days all season long. This is a guy who... Being drafted in the mid-30s, we liked a lot with the expectation he was going to miss some 15 to 20 ball games this year with knee maintenance. And that completely gets flipped on its head now. He is no longer a value in the 30s. I say this because, look, Robert Williams was number 13 on a per-game basis last year. He played in 61 games, which in my mind, was something we were kind of expecting to repeat itself, that he was going to be gunning for about 75% of his team's games, a lot of maintenance days, time off here and there. On a good team, he wasn't going to be quite as needed on a night-to-night basis. They've got their chemistry, all that stuff. Well, now you start the season. I mean, this, this all pivots back to how you just don't draft players who are hurt to start the year. Because when you look at a guy, and Robert Williams is a wonderful example to use this with, we already knew with him, with pretty much anybody in the NBA nowadays, other than like Mikael Bridges, and that's about it, everybody's going to miss some number of ballgames in a given season. For a litany of reasons. Actual injuries, rest days, tank days. There's all kinds of stuff that teams use as reasons to give players a breather. And with Robert Williams, 
if he had all 82 games to play in, we assumed he was going to miss 15 to 20. Now, you squeeze that number down. Yeah, squeeze is the proper pronunciation of the word. I don't care what anybody says. You squeeze that number down. It's a combination of squish and squeeze. There. Wondering where the hell that word came from. What do we think? Do we think he misses the first two weeks of the regular season? I actually think it's probably more, but let's just say two. Keep life easy. Six, seven games. Something in that neck of the woods. So now you're talking about Robert Williams coming back from a surgery to play a 75-game season. If you thought, if we thought, if any of us from a projection standpoint figured he was going to play, just take last year's numbers to make our lives simple, 61 out of 82 games. It's very close to three quarters. We can get the exact number. It's 74.4%, just under three quarters. So if you thought he was going to play 74.4% of his games in a healthy, put it in air quotes, season, then can't we safely assume he'd be playing in that same number of, or fraction, percentage of games of whatever the total is you throw at him now? So let's say it's a 75-game season. 74.4% of that is 55.8, 55.79. We can even round up to 56 So now you're talking about missing the first seven games of the year and then playing in 55 or 56 of the remaining 75 ballgames. If Robert Williams played in 56 games at a early second round clip, you're talking about a player that actually isn't too far from Jimmy Butler last year, who played in 57 games, and he was end of third round, which is basically where Robert Williams has been getting drafted. And I thought in our mind, that's kind of your worst-case scenario when he had a full season. But now you're talking about additional rest. You're talking about all the things that can go wrong coming back from an injury. I don't know how far he's going to fall in drafts. It's going to be some amount And then we'll have to kind of recalculate. So the lesson from this, this is actually really important. So please strap on your thinking caps for a moment. The lesson here is not that you can't draft Robert Williams anymore under any circumstance. You probably shouldn't because of all those things that happen with a guy coming back or coming into the season hurt. Things tend to take longer. There's a longer ramp up. In all reality, he's probably going to miss more than the first six or seven games of the season. Guys tend to favor injuries when they come back, and other stuff tends to derail them. Pascal Siakam was very much the exception to the rule last year. He came back from his injury, and he basically didn't miss games the rest of the season. One here and there, like one game every three weeks the rest of the way. That's pretty awesome. That never happens. So for Robert Williams, you're probably talking about 55, 56 games as a better, I don't say best, but a better case scenario. And if you assume he misses a third week coming into the year, you wipe out another three games or three and a half games there. You take his 74.4% of the remaining, what do we want to call it now, 72 games? So 74.4% of 72 is 53 and a half. So now he's playing in 53 games. 
I mean, suddenly you're looking at Kristaps Porzingis, who played in 51 games as a mid-second rounder last year, and he was right around the edge of the top 50. Maybe that's what you get from Robert Williams. Maybe you get a 50 range totals value at the end of the year. And there are arguments to be made on the Roto Games Cap side that that wouldn't completely obliterate your team. I get it. Let's say he starts getting drafted in the mid to late fifth round, like he starts getting taken at 55 or 60. There's a very reasonable math argument to be made that he should get drafted there. But I also get it. You're really rolling the dice in a lot of ways because if he ends up missing a month, four, five weeks to start the year instead of two or three, now you run into that other issue, which is if anyone else on your team gets hurt during that stretch in Roto, you start to fall behind in games played by more than you wanted to. And in head-to-head, I don't know how many IL slots your team has, but if you have two and suddenly two other guys get hurt on your team... You're either forced to drop someone or start just wearing it for two or three weeks until someone comes back. Drafting an injured player to start the year puts you on a really rough path where you have to be even better than the math would suggest to come back from that. Because other factors, in addition to just numbers, work against you when you're drafting an injured player to start the year. In head-to-head, you fall behind in actual ranking. So you need to make decisions based on catching up, meaning you can't really stash the rest of the way. You have to be more cutthroat with your ads and drops the rest of the way. You almost kind of have to stream in the regular season, and you're going to cost yourself from rest-of-season values that way. In Roto, you may have to pick up weird streamers to fill in the games played if you end up with too many guys hurt. It's not as significant, admittedly, with a games cap. One of the reasons I really do like it, one injury should not completely derail your season. Another good reason for Roto. Your work all season long actually matters. But it's really hard to make the argument to draft an injured player. Now, we may get more information. If you're drafting the weekend before the season starts, but between now and then, which is some three and change odd weeks, we probably will get some information on how he's doing in his recovery. Okay, you know, Robert Williams, he hasn't been into training camp yet. They're expecting him to do three-on-three or four-on-four or whatever it is, drills within the next week or something like that. You can start to feel a little bit more comfortable. Say, okay, if this guy really is going to be back by the third week of the season, if he really is still getting drafted in the 50s and 60s, I would do it. Did you guys hear what that was? That was a quote. That was not like, I would do it, do it. Bad phrasing for a podcast where you couldn't see my what I'm doing with my face in my hands. But I'm just saying... With some more additional information, we might be able to change our tune. As it stands right now, I don't know how you go down that path. The news on Shea Gilgis-Alexander is that he has a grade 2 sprain in his left MCL. He will be out for the start of training camp and will be reevaluated in two weeks. The pre-tank is on, ladies and gentlemen. With Chet Holmgren out for the year... Any thoughts that the Thunder might start to push for wins this season, you can just dump it right out the window. Shea has very much signed on to the pre-tank, to the full tank, whatever you want to call it. The Thunder are going to try to make sure they lose some games at the beginning of the year so that Shea and whoever else on that team can actually play a little bit harder in the middle and towards the end of the season. 
as they build up a little bit of momentum towards 2023-24. We saw stuff like this coming. I don't think that I thought it was going to be coming this soon. And look, in reality, he probably does have some kind of injury here. But... There you go. He was not someone that I was super excited about drafting anyway. Shea, a much better per-game producer with lots of those same Robert Williams-y red flags for different reasons, mind you, but missed games is the big one. He was number 34 per game last year. That's pretty close to where he's getting drafted right now, and I can sort of get it again on the Roto side. Uh, but with this news, and he was really going to miss the beginning of training camp, reevaluated during training camp, they're going to bring him along slowly. He's going to miss some time at the beginning of the year. He'll miss some time in the middle and probably near the end of the season as well. They're not going to push him for more than low 60s in games this year as they shoot for one more top overall pick and then make a push next season. By the way, Thunder next year, I would bet the over on their season win totals right now if they had a number out and I could take it. But this season is shaping up to be another tank for them. And that makes a guy like Shea very, very dangerous. And someone that wasn't really a draft day value before this news, or at least with Robert Williams, him going in the 30s, you could have argued was a decent value, even with the injury stuff. With Shea, he kind of needed to go in the 50s to be a value with the injury stuff. I don't know where he's going to go with this news. Maybe it doesn't move the needle at all. We'll find out. I think it will. It should. So unfortunately, today's podcast, which was supposed to be me diving into some ESPN ranks, and we can do a little bit of that today, uh, ended up being mostly about high draft picks, guys getting taken in the first three rounds that are suddenly now going to be out for the beginning of the training camp, at least, and probably the beginning of the season. And just another feather in the cap of the cap that yells, that, yeah, this is a hat that just screams constantly. It's a screaming hat. And the hat yells, draft close to the start of the season. Just think, up until yesterday, if you had already had your fantasy draft, you probably went in there thinking, ooh, I'm going to get Robert Williams at 36 to 40, and that's going to be swell. Because in my Roto League, I'll play 62 games, but my late third, early fourth round pick is going to post early second round per game value, and I'm just going to be licking my chops. And then, boom. Dropped that news on you yesterday. This is not a shot at any of you guys because I would have done the same thing. I loved Robert Williams in the mid to late 30s this year. You knew that. He was going to be very much on the Dan Vespers old man squad, and now he will not be anymore. Simple as that. You ain't making the old man squad if you're coming into the season hurt. Doesn't mean I'm not going to consider you at some number way down the board, but you ain't on the old man squad, that's for damn sure. Guys, do you want this year's iteration of the list that last year gave you Tyrese Halliburton ranked higher than any other list? Do you want this year's list, you know, of the one that last year gave you DeJounte Murray ranked higher than any other list? Do you guys want this year's list this year's version of last year's list that gave you Mikhail Bridges earlier than any other list last year. Ladies and gentlemen, do you want the list this season 
that last year gave you Devin Booker earlier. Yeah, I know. I wasn't that high on him, but Brew can rub that in my face. Terry Rozier, he and I agreed on that one. JJJ, yeah, we were together on that one. Jonas Valanciunas earlier than any other list. Jakob Pertl, Gary Trent Jr. earlier than other lists. Ladies and gentlemen, do you want the 2022-2023 Brewski 150? Can you imagine if you nailed all of those picks that I just mentioned that the B150 had consistently ranked earlier than the other lists on the market? Halliburton, in particular, the B150 was absurdly high on. Brewski was told he was in a, uh, well, I can't say all the mean words for having Tyrese, for being that high on him as seemingly the backup point guard in Sacramento. A lot of guys were high on DeJounte Murray. I was worried, and I talked to Brew, and he said, this is one of those buzz guys, Dan, where everybody isn't even going high enough. And damn it, he was right. You can rub that one in my face, too. I thought everybody was going high enough. Mikhail Bridges, we agreed on that one. He doesn't get to rub that in my face. Terry Rozier, we agreed on that one. He doesn't get to rub it in my face. Valanchunas, yeah. But here's the thing. A lot of you are like, Dan, I feel like I can get most of what I need from a few podcasts and a couple of tweets. You're not right. You need the analysis that only the B-150 can bring you. It is the winningest list in the history of fantasy basketball. It basically invented the idea of a 150-deep rank board coming into a season that has now been imitated by basically every website on the planet. If you are going to get any list this year, it should be the B-150. And it's available to Ethos 360 subscribers seven days from now. It's also available to the Fantasy Pass just shortly after that and Draft Guide subscribers as well. You can also get the B-150 a la carte. All of these things are available at sportsethos.com, the land formerly known as Hoopball. If you've been with us in the past, come join us again for what's set to be another wonderful year with ridiculous draft day values. I mean, if you had Tyrese Halliburton, DeJounte Murray, and Mikael Bridges on your fantasy team last year, these guys that were going... Halliburton was going near 50-something. Murray was going near 50-something. Rozier, Mikhail Bridges, those guys were going in the 60s and 70s. Do you know where those dudes ended up last year? By totals? Halliburton was 7. Murray was 6. Rozier was 19. Mikhail Bridges was 24. And you were able to do that without using either any of your top four picks in your draft. You could have ended up, if you had a decent second round pick, which, you know, roll of the dice last year, you could have easily ended up with, with using the B-150 if you got those guys and drafted just, like, fine in the first four rounds. You could have had three firsts, three seconds, and, uh, no, a third. <laughs> You think anybody's beating you with those teams? Hell no. I'm going to win a truckload of cash. And yeah, you know what? 
Patrick Williams didn't hit, but whatever. You used your, what, 11th round pick on that one? Go to sportsethos.com, upgrade to premium, get the B-150 earlier than anybody else, and let's go win, damn it. Come on. What do I want to do with the last 10 minutes or so of today's podcast? I had these delusions of diving deep into the ESPN rank board, but I suppose we can save that for tomorrow. And so instead, today, we will speak briefly on what's been going on in the industry pro mock, because we talked about the... I gave you kind of rapid fire the first two rounds of that mock yesterday, uh, and I know many of you would like to see or hear additional names. So let's do a couple more rounds, and then what I'd like to do is, after you now know the first four rounds, we can talk a little bit about some of the names that popped out on there. So the third round, you know what, screw it, let's just go back, I'll I'll rapid-fire the first two again today, since some of you might not have listened to yesterday's podcast. First two rounds went Jokic, Doncic, Giannis, KD, Tyrese Halliburton, Steph Curry, Joel Embiid, Damian Lillard, Jason Tatum, LaMelo Ball, James Harden, and Trey Young. That's the first round. Cat, Booker, Kyrie, Anthony Davis, Freddie Van Vliet, LeBron, Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Edwards, Shea. Well, that was before the news, obviously. DeJounte Murray, John Morant, and Paul George. The next two rounds, third and fourth, Jimmy Butler, Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, Rudy Gobert, Bam Adebayo, DeAndre Ayton. That's the first half of the third round. Chris Paul, Robert Williams. Again, that was before the surgery news broke. Demonis Sabonis, Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, and Cade Cunningham. Fourth round, Chris Stops Porzingis earlier than expected. Jalen Brown, Miles Turner, Chris Middleton. By the way, there was also a little Miles Turner nugget that popped out today. Mention that here as we're going through. DeMar DeRozan, Donovan Mitchell, first half of the fourth round. Drew Holiday, De'Aaron Fox, Bradley Beal, Jared Allen, Christian Wood, and Zion Williamson couple of thoughts from the first four rounds. Um, we mentioned in the first, we talked a little bit about Tyrese Halliburton. That developed, that generated a lot of Twitter buzz when we were posting some of these results over on social media, which again, you can follow me there at Dan Bespris. I don't think I even ever actually welcomed any of you to the pod. Did I forget to say hello? Uncle Leo would be irate. Hello, everyone. This is, has been, and will continue to be Fantasy NBA Today, the podcast, the flamethrower. I'm Dan Bespris. Thank you again, everybody, for listening this whole offseason. It's been a wing ding. Let's keep going. Um, so Halliburton generated the most buzz on Twitter when we posted those first round results. Second round, uh, there wasn't a whole lot there. Doc took some heat for taking John Morant early in a roto league, um, and he basically gave everybody the double birds on that one. And then laughed about it in a text message with me. <laughs> Love, Doc. Uh, otherwise, in the second round, Cat falling to 13 was a stunner. Kyrie, Anthony Davis, LeBron, Kawhi going earlier than expected. That was something really interesting to watch for. Uh, we'll continue to do more competitive roto mocks to see if that's something that was more unique to this particular draft. Did Adam Stock just really like him and he would have fallen to the third round? Or is that something that's going to be popping up in roto drafts everywhere? Anthony Edwards continues to go relatively early. I don't believe we're going to have Ryan Knaus on the pod this year, but we will talk to him on social so we can get some more information there. Um, Shea will have to sort of reassess with this injury news. 
And that was kind of the second round. It was not filled with stunners the way the first round was. What about the third, though? Things start to get a little bit kooky here in the third and fourth. Uh, Scotty Barnes is getting a lot of, of discussion on social media going at 26. That does appear to be a little bit on the early side. Um, DeAndre Ayton, this is a little earlier than he's been going. It's not insane if we assume he does kind of redevelop uh, the durability bone that he didn't quite have last season. I just, not a ton of upside with that play in the middle of the third, but a very quiet, reliable one. I got Chris Paul at, at uh, you know, mid-third, and he probably would fall farther. But again, like that that's not one where I really want to risk him not getting back to me in the fourth. I love Chris Paul. I don't think he's going to blow the roof off the building, but as mid-third rounders go, he makes an, an awful lot of sense. Then Robert Williams, pre-injury news. Uh, we'll, we'll do some more mocks here really soon as hell. I might We'll probably do another one as early as Friday to try to find out if some of this news is already impacting things. Demonis Sabonis going late third. That's a really nice steal. Darius Garland, this is probably closer to where he ends up going now with Donovan Mitchell in town. Evan Mobley. I really feel like we've wiped out a lot of the value on Mobley because he's not like it's, it's you know he's not going to be a high usage guy. And one of the things you notice with bigs, and we I think can classify him as a big at this point, power forward though he may be, is that the big dudes at the front of drafts have something they do that is so beyond hyper elite that it floats them. Like Robert Williams, a great example. Yes, we're downgrading him significantly because of the injury stuff, but his blocks and field goal percent hyper elite without really damaging your free throw situation. The way that someone like Rudy Gobert, who's hyper elite in those two things and rebounding, but also a punt free throw guy. If you are in, you know, someone like a DeAndre Ayton, for instance, he was very good in field goal percent, but he wasn't that great in blocks, and his rebounds were above average, but not, uh, not stellar. So you need generally two things as a big man to really push yourself up and over. And with Mobley, much as I love Evan Mobley, and he's really exciting, and what an incredible player the Cavs have, so don't you know, don't make this me clowning on Mobley. He didn't have anything last year that was hyper elite. He was very good in blocks with 1.7, but that was it. Rebounds were slightly above average for a power forward at 8.3. Not bad, but not a big-time impact thing. Field goal percent was okay at 51%, but not like we're talking Robert Williams, Rudy Gobert, those type of guys are up in the mid-60s to low-70s. And even though Mobley's going to take more shots, the question has to be here, how does he get into that top 30 discussion? And it has to be more blocks. He's going to have to clear two per game if he wants to get there. And this, like this is the answer to the question of what is Miles Turner doing in that neighborhood every year? Well, he's so beyond anything in blocks, he only needs to be hyper elite in one category. Because Miles Turner at almost three blocks per game can basically win you a category by himself. Other guys really just can't do that. Do we think Evan Mobley can get up into the mid-twos in blocks? I wouldn't bank on it. That's asking a lot of a dude who came in and blocked almost two shots per game in his rookie season. That was already a really nice number. 
His rebounds likely aren't set to change a ton with Jared Allen still around. Maybe the scoring ticks up a little, so the field goal percent would be slightly more of a positive, you know, more volume there. But, you know, even if he fixes the free throw percent, that's not going to hyper elite. I don't see the path for him to get inside the top 30 this year when there's just all that stuff around him. He's a vital cog and a really, really good young ball player. Is the Anthony Davis route the potential path for him? We have to sort of ask ourselves that because AD gets himself into that uppermost discussion partially because he's at 1.3 steals and 2.3 blocks. So the three-point whatever, in that case six, but the three-point whatever combined defensive stats is it one way to kind of push yourself into that 30-something discussion. That's a way to maybe get there. Miles Turner's at 3.5 combined defensive stats, and that's basically enough without much else on the docket. Could he get to, like, you know, 15 points, 8 boards, a steal, one full steal, and 2.1 blocks? Maybe that's the path? Now, the fact that we're sort of, like, scratching and clawing to find that exact moment, and I talked about it a bunch on yesterday's show, you can love a player and not love where they're getting drafted, and I just feel like we've inched a little bit too far up the board unless he's extremely durable. It's just a little bit too far for me. I wanted him to be, you know, 40s or 50s, and instead he's 30s, and that's just a big, big, steep price. Fourth round, seeing Christoph Porzingis go at the beginning of the fourth round was somewhat surprising. I am actually kind of high on Porzingis this year, so personally, I wasn't that blown away by the occurrence. I think he again, will be a mid-second rounder per game, and I think there's a decent shot he gets up into the high 50s to low 60s in games played this year, which turns him into sort of like a just-behind-last-year's Robert Williams. So totals value, you're looking at maybe late 20s, early 30s, is very much in the realm of possibility for him. And in Roto, that's great. So seeing him getting drafted in the late 30s is a spot I would actually consider him. I just don't think you really have to. On the other hand, this is someone drafting on the turn. He ain't coming back at the end of the fifth. So then you make that decision in your mind. Is there anyone coming up here in the next five to ten that I would rather have? Or is this my guy? Fair enough. Jalen Brown, Miles Turner. Oh, the Miles Turner news. Just to uh, digress briefly. Uh, that The quote came out from Indiana Brass that they expect Miles Turner to be their starting center when this season begins. So both sides, if you're talking Lakers, whoever might be in the market here, otherwise for Miles Turner, everybody's just saying, hey, we're going into the season with who we've got right now. Both sides are posturing to try to make sure that they don't overpay and don't look desperate. It's a quote. It doesn't really mean anything. It just solidifies what we already know, which is that no one's going to back down and just panic and make a trade and and feel like they're overpaying in the moment, at least not right now, while the season hasn't even yet begun. He could still get moved. He might not get moved. This does put, again, a little more ammo or a little more coinage in the bucket for him being on Indy for a couple of months at least this season, maybe the whole year. And if Miles Turner is in Indiana, he's going to have a great role. 
and he's going to be most likely a draft day steal because this is actually earlier than you tend to see him go. Early 40s is, I mean, he's a guy that tends to slip because of how many games he misses. Something to keep an eye on for sure. Chris Middleton, mid-fourth is fine. DeMar DeRozan and Donovan Mitchell slipping into the fourth. This is a spot where I would absolutely take either of those guys. In fact, Donovan Mitchell was me. I took him. And everybody was blown away because I didn't take Drew Holiday at that spot. But, I mean, Drew might actually beat Donovan Mitchell by totals on the year. I just, look, I end up falling into this habit. And it's not really the case in this particular draft because I have Embiid and LeBron James early. But with the way I tend to draft, I often miss on scorers. And so this was a rare opportunity that an elite scorer fell to me in the middle of the fourth round. And so I took it. Plus, my free throw shooting was meh to this point. Chris Paul, very good, but not a ton of them. Embiid is sort of average. LeBron's going to pull it down. I'm going to need somebody or somebody's, honestly, to start pulling that back up. And Drew Holiday wouldn't be that guy. Meanwhile, my field goal percent is terrific. Uh, I've got some blocks, some steals, plenty of steals, good assist numbers. I didn't need the Drew Holiday point guard with better field goal percent stat set. I just didn't at that point. So uh, this was a little bit team buildy to some degree, but I do like both of those guys mid four if they're there. Darren Fox went just behind Drew Holiday. I have a little bit of a soft spot for Darren Fox this year. I've been very anti-Fox for two or three years in a row, and that's been accurate two or three years in a row. This feels like a year where he just generally plays better. The question, of course, becomes how much better because we've seen stretches where his free throw shooting improves to even like mid-70s, and he can be a top 50 guy, but because his field goal percent is good, he's going to score a lot, he'll get assists, he's going to get some steals, but on the other side of that, he doesn't need to do everything himself. Demonis Sabonis is going to be around, he's going to be a feature part of the offense there as well. Darren Fox at 18, 19 shots per game is not at all a given so this is still a little bit too early for my liking, particularly on the Roto side where his free throw stuff can become a problem, especially over an entire year. You don't get that week-to-week fluctuation. A couple more interesting names here at the end of the fourth round, and then we'll put a pin in this. We'll talk more about the draft as we uh, continue to weave through it. I do want to get to ESPN stuff tomorrow. Bradley Beal, ninth pick of the fourth round. Yeah, 45. You're starting to get to a point here where Beal looks kind of damn interesting again. We'll do more Roto mocks, see if he continues to fall this far. I think generally he'll go a little earlier than that, but this is an analyst draft, so everybody sort of has their guys. And when that happens, when guys are sort of taking their guys, names like this slip through the cracks a little bit. It happened with Jimmy Butler in like every league last year. And uh, yeah, he missed a bunch of time, but there's always some dude. Jared Allen at uh, the hell we at, 46. That's a good spot for him. I like him there. Christian Wood at 47. It's a gamble there. It's a roll of the dice if the free throw stuff is okay. I don't know. I'm not. I'm a little afraid of Wood, even in a new spot. I think he'll be more disciplined this year. You know, He was pretty good uh, before they shut him down towards the end of last season top 50, top 60 kind of guy. So he very much has the stat set to hit this point, but he's not someone I'm targeting. And then Zion, at the end of the fourth round, oh boy, you better have some serious free throw clout built up 
if you're going to go Zion in the fourth or fifth. And to this team's credit, they do have Jokic, positive foul shooter. Paul George, positive foul shooter. Jimmy Butler, positive foul shooter. So there is actually some free throw clout built up. And if you look last season at uh, the Basketball Monster rank board is typically a good spot to start. Jokic was a small positive in free throw shooting. Uh, Jimmy Butler is always a big positive in free throw shooting. He's one of the preeminent guys in that capacity. Uh, And then where the hell did Paul George end up? He was pretty damn good last year, also at 86% on five shots per game. So if you pile all of those guys together, they probably all combine to kind of wipe out Zion. And so then you ask yourself, the other question is, how badly did I need what he was going to bring here? Uh, And this is Steve's team, who's our director of content, so I can have him on the pod and I can just lay into him a little bit. I don't think I would have done it because between Jokic and Butler, you actually had a really good field goal percent foundation from your center and your wing spots. Jokic is one of the best field goal percent players in the NBA last year, and Jimmy Butler for ball-dominant wings was also really good in that regard. High 40s to low 50s, he sort of bounced in between them. He ended at 48. Yes, Paul George is going to drag you down, but George alone against Butler and Jokic, you still were a net positive in field goal percent. So all you really needed to do was avoid a tank free throw point guard, and you would have been probably in the upper four or five teams in field goal percent with room to climb to the top. That's the power of Nikola Jokic. So I think there's maybe a team build question here more than anything else, where maybe if you had some really good foul shooters early but didn't have good free throw shooting, or excuse me, didn't have good field goal percent, maybe that's the situation where you look at a Zion like, uh, Jared's team, for instance, had Dame and Freddie Van Fleet early. You could pair those guys with Zion. They could wipe out his free throw stuff, and he could wipe out their field goal things. So there's a balancing act with someone like a Zion, who is a true punt player, so good in two or three things, and so very, very bad in one, that you have to budget your strategy around it. But it's doable. It's e- It's actually easier to pull off in a slow draft because you can kind of think through all this stuff. You don't have to figure out what I'm doing. I mean, you know, in a normal speed draft, it'd be coming back to you in six or seven minutes, and you got to figure out what players are left on the board in then 30 seconds or 45 seconds or whatever. That's tough. I actually think that's one of the reasons that punting is so hard is that if you don't get the guys you're specifically targeting, you've limited the board to such a, a massive degree. I also got an interesting DM question related to punting in Roto. Uh, I will address that on a future episode as well. It was a good uh, thought, and uh, I'd like to do a little bit of a deep dive on that coming up. So, lessons to take away from today's podcast, which, again, they start to run a little bit longer here as we get closer to the season, not on purpose. Lessons are probably don't draft injured guys going into the season. I know we're going to get tempted by how far they fall, but let's just not do it. Lesson number two If you want a list that might give you three of the biggest values on the board every year, forever, go get yourself a Fantasy Pass subscription or an Ethos 360 subscription or just the draft guide over at sportsethos.com. Do I need to do a damn coupon to get you to do it? I'll tell you what, maybe I'll do something on Twitter today where if there's enough engagement with it, then I'll talk to Brew about a coupon. We'll see. We'll see. 
I haven't been convinced yet. You guys are going to have to wear me down on that one. We'll see. And lesson number three is uh, guys are moving in Roto Mocks in particular, and we need to figure out more if these are trends or one-offs because an industry draft does tend to have a little bit of weirdness to it. Tomorrow, we'll dive into the ESPN category rank board. Do not confuse that with their points leagues ranking because they are very different. For many years, they didn't even do a category board, and that created that made ESPN the easiest place on earth to just thump people in category leagues because they're, you want to call it like the X rank over there. I don't know what the hell they call it. They're, they're like default ranking board in draft rooms, defaulted to points leagues. And so you just go completely off the board and just destroy people that were following it in any way. Now they actually have a category board. I don't know what the draft room looks like. I don't play at ESPN because I think it, the UI stinks over there. But tomorrow we'll talk about their uh, nine cat ranking board, or at least just head to head category scoring. It's not clear if it's nine or eight. Come on, ESPN. <laughs> we're going to be better out of you. But uh, we'll go through some of that on tomorrow's show. And then Friday, mock time. And we'll do some mocks with Twitter folks as well. So keep your Twitter fingers ready. We're going to do it on social media. Again, I'm at Dan Vespers on social. I hope to talk to you over there. Hey, now that I know we have some new listeners coming in, please do take a moment to navigate over to iTunes or the podcast app on your mobile device and drop a five-star review on the pod. That's a big way that we find new listeners this time of year is when new five-star reviews come in and new subscribers come in. So please do remember to click that button. I'll be reminding you of that every day between now and the end of days. What the hell is today? Wednesday? All right. 27. That's our number. Hasta mañana.